is right now in the process of creating a standalone energy company called Givanova. The energy portfolio is onshore wind, offshore wind, blade manufacturing, hydro, solar, storage, interface, grid solutions, steam power, gas power, oil and gas, power conversion, nuclear, and we also have our own bank. So we have energy financial services. Today on the show, we have Claus Rose. He's the vice president of EHS Renewables at GE. Claus, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate that. So we were just saying, there's plenty of excitement in this position and what you get to do every day. So can you explain a little bit about what your sector is doing in renewables? I'm actually working as the separation management officer for EHS for the entire energy portfolio. It's a very, very large business and it's the biggest that we have on the on the planet right now. So it's extremely exciting. There's a lot of potential and what we primarily do is of course helping companies, governments with the energy transition that has now become more relevant than ever given the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So I think that's briefly what I cover. So you guys are seeing a lot of opportunity in that sector to come in and help with the growth. Yeah, because the reality is that there are a lot, of, a lot of jobs that's going to have to transfer into this new green world. And those are jobs that are not there today. So there's a lot of opportunities for people that want to work in creating a better future for the planet, for us as a human species. So is it migrating people who already work in energy, let's say on fossil fuels, over to now working on renewables? No, not really, because even from the fossil fuels perspective, you have new technology like carbon capture, which literally makes it CO2 free. So you have a transition. That transition is what needs to happen. So people that are in that sector right now needs to get skills to learn new things that are coming up from a technical, but also from a design perspective. And I think what we don't know is what we don't know. That's the beauty of human beings. They have the ability to create stuff that nobody has ever believed was possible. So it's not that, but it could be that it's areas where we work today in very traditional coal-fired plants where we say that probably does not have a future. So these people need to transition into that. It's the traditional mining industry that then also needs to transition. So if you take globally, just as an example, technicians, between now and 26, we need about 570,000 technicians globally. That is an increase in five years, but close to about 200,000 than what we have in the pipeline. In that very short time span, you just have to find a huge amount of people. In the US, for instance, where we're starting to build offshore projects, we don't have people that have worked offshore in the wind industry before in that scale. That's going to be new. And, and the whole sector just have to then figure out how we're going to do that. Do we have the right pieces of equipment, vessels, cranes? And if we change that, we need people to be upskilled, trained differently. It's an ongoing battle to get the talent, the resources that you need into the energy sector. I think that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles for the industry as such. I guess it's good AI is going to displace a lot of jobs because we need people in energy. Correct. So what AI is going to do is it's going to help you part of the way. But unfortunately, when it comes to building these massive power plants, robots can't do it. 
you are you are depending on humans. So what, what AI and machine learning can help you develop is analyzing your data and then free up resources in that space, but they then need to transition into more labor-focused jobs on the front line. Is it possible? Absolutely. Everybody needs to realize that what you do today is probably not what you're going to do tomorrow, a year, two years out. How long does it take somebody to get the skills necessary to be these technicians within Renewable? It really depends. But it, as, a, as a rule of thumb, I would say it, it takes between three to five years because you need to have a basic skill set. That could be a college degree. It could be something like that because you need to have a technical baseline understanding. Then you need to figure out what kind of trade you want to be in. Is it mechanical? Is it hydraulic? Is it electrical? And then you need to learn the skill set there. But what we have found is that that's not going to do it. So if we can't find people that have the technical skill set, we need to build that skill set. So we now work with a number of colleges around the world and even built our own training facilities to help get those people to that kind of level. And then they progress. And if you didn't get into that, I would say that very skilled technicians that do troubleshooting and stuff like that, you're talking about five, seven, ten years in and around that. So they are highly, highly skilled because they need to understand a lot of complexity in the system. Yeah, it definitely sounds like we need to get on this. If there's a five-year window, we're going to have 200,000 job openings and we don't have the people. We need to get started, right? Yeah. So what brought you into the renewable space? Has this always been your background? No, not at all. I come from the military, so I spent 21 years in the armed forces. And in that, I had a background in leadership and business administration, so nothing to do with EHS. And then once I stopped, I kind of created my own business to kind of, yeah, get a little bit of different flavors of the world and then started looking at how to do risk assessment, risk support for construction in different kind of, of shapes and forms. And by coincidence, I met a guy from, at that point in time, Siemens, and said, can you help build an EHS organization? And so, I don't know, how difficult can it be? And then we kind of made a bit fun of that, and then all of a sudden we came to an agreement, yeah, let's try it out. So I, I literally came into an organization with zero background and then had to build up an organization. But the beauty of it is EHS isn't difficult. People make it difficult. And you need, need to find a way to work with the organization because the EHS function as such has just one task. And it may sound crazy for people that live in the EHS space, but it's true that it's to get out of a job. That's, your only, that's the only purpose in life. That's to get out of a job. Why is that? Because if you don't have EHS people or quality people, that means that the business is actually handling those issues themselves. So why do you need EHS people? Well, you don't. But getting there, that's the hard part. And that's a long haul to get there because there are a lot of stuff that is very specialized in, in that space where you need certain kind of skilled people to, to deal with. But they just still have to remember the core aspiration. Get out of a job. Or you become in a financial term, just an overhead cost allocation, meaning that you provide zero value add to the bottom line of a business, which is true. So you need to be very mindful of that and then be very, very laser focused on everything that you do matters. If it doesn't, then it's easy for a finance 
part of the organization to actually pull that in to become a finance discussion instead of a impact discussion. So how do you recommend somebody gets out of a job? It's really about keep challenging yourself. Never keep doing what you did yesterday, assuming that you're going to get a different result. I think Einstein put it very cleverly. Keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. You should consider getting into a mental institution because he's actually right. right. Nothing is going to change. And you need to have the courage to go places where people haven't been before. And also accept the fact that you're going to fail multiple times, but never give up. I have a ton of examples in my own life where I went places where people kept saying, it's never going to happen. You're stupid. We don't believe it. And then you get really eager to show them differently. And, and that's how you prove your value in an EHS organization, because the only thing that you have to remember, you're dealing with one problem. Humans do make mistakes. You can't take that away. You and I make six and a half mistakes every hour. It's given. There's nothing we can do about it. But what we can do, we can focus on hindering that the outcome is going to be catastrophic. That's what we can do. But in order to figure out what that means, you need to work with the front line. You need to work with people in your organization to help figure out what are then ways that we can do. And then just keep challenging yourself. Can you share one of those examples of that process of failing, learning, making oh, those yeah, mistakes? I can. I will take our not too recent tool that we have created in the digital space. It's a machine learning AI tool. We call it MATE. It's machine learning and AI for EHS. What the tool helps you do is safeguarding employees. So we have created something that nobody else have globally. It doesn't exist. It took two years to get there. So I said, we need to find a way where we have a machine that's able to validate, give us a very clear overview of what is our clear risks, but not from a first layer perspective, but from a secondary layer perspective and from a operational aspect layer. So to give you an example, let's just say that lifting operation is our highest risk. If I tell people you have a problem with lifting, what is the human brain going to tell? We are not able to take a load from A to B. We have a problem. So if our focus is on that and we don't see any changes, we have to ask ourselves, are we really doing the right thing? And here's the problem. Humans cannot create that overview of understanding to the level of when you need that information. So interestingly enough, when we then ask, mate, tell us what is the primary reason for lifting operations being high on the list. Now you see correlations that you couldn't find before. So interesting enough, vehicle operations is highly up on the agenda. And then you ask yourself, why vehicle operations? It has nothing to do with lifting. Oh, yes, it does. If you have mobile cranes, these mobile cranes get moved from A to B. And then you ask yourself, okay, vehicle operations. Now I want to understand exactly where in that process from ordering until it leaves the location, where is it that things are moving in the wrong direction? And then you can then, with MATE, go in and say, on the pre-mobilization in that space, in that area of your operation, this is where you have the problem, here's why. So now you get a split-second overview of your risk in real time. So MATE right now analyzes 500,000 records and counting, and it does that in 2 minutes and 38 seconds with an accuracy rate of well over 
Uh, and no humans can process that information. We tried with 2,000 records just for the fun of it. They spent two people 10 days validating the data. Mate did it in less than 30 seconds with an 88% accuracy rate. The two individuals were roughly about 55%. So why are we spending time on something that is just a waste of time, which it was? So that's a good example of where in two years, we tried a lot. We tried big companies, Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, couldn't do it. They gave up. But we had two conditions that we never, ever gave in on has to be non-supervised learning, meaning no human interface, and it has to be human bias-free, meaning that we will accept what the machine tells us is what we use as a learning. We are not going to tell the machine what we want it to learn. So those are two things that we never, ever compromise. And that is tricky because now you're getting into a space where you allow yourself to trust the machine, but it's proven right. So we've taken out a substantial amount of severe injuries and fatalities in the last year. So close to 90% and close to 40% of our recordable injuries. And that is linked to the fact now we know where we need to focus. Did we focus in the right area in the past? No, we didn't. Because humans, the human capacity to understand risk in that level of detail simply wasn't there. Now we have it in real time every day. And you can see how it shifts. So you can see how the risk matrix is shifting if you do the right thing. And that is an amazing challenge. But in that process, people came around. It's never going to happen. It isn't possible. Nobody else has done it before. Stop doing it. But just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. Learn from your mistake. Take that learning into the next place. Adapt, learn, overcome, move on. Is this technology going to be able to be applied to other industries for risk assessment? Well, it could. So we're actually internally talking about making this available because at the end of the day, what, what the tool helps you do is actually safeguarding employees. So I think we have no right as a company to kind of just hold that to ourselves because if we can help prevent people being severely injured or killed, I think we have an obligation as a company to, to, to do what is right. So... We will probably allow others to get into that space as well and then use that opportunity. Yeah, and this is amazing technology. Only two years to develop this. I mean, it seems like this should have taken a decade. Yeah, but it's really about, I think the, the learning for me was never give in on your specifics. So the key criteria that you have, stick to those. Whoever you talk to, create an elevator speech around exactly those topics. And if you find that people are not able to do it, then stop the cooperation. I think initially we just spent too long with companies that kept telling us, yeah, we know how to do it. We'll figure it out. And then just time went on and went on. And at a certain point in time, we just learned, guys, stop. Doesn't work out. And then we kind of got very picky. And at the end, it was kind of like, you have six weeks. If you can't do it in six weeks, you cannot do it. You're out. So it, it's, it's really about being that persistent, but also being able to help have a conversation because companies that you work with to build that, they have a certain amount of knowledge in their space, but you need to bring in your knowledge from your space and then figure out how to, to, to get those two to come together. Yeah. If they can't deliver, you hold people to high standards. It's what it sounds like you've done and that's how you're able to get it completed. So. 
if any of our listeners want to explore getting into the proper trades and education to help with this 200,000 people job gap, what can they do to learn more? How do they learn from GE? I think what I can always recommend, if people have a, a desire to kind of get into that industry, there's just a ton of opportunities, regardless where you are in the world. I think that there are so many jobs that are going to come up either with the, the manufacturers of, of the equipment like us or some of the utility companies. Everybody is looking for people that wants to get into this trade. And there, there's a good opportunity. You have, you have schools, you have in the U.S., for instance, you have colleges that are specializing in that area, in that field, where you then get to learn that. Even inside of GE, we have scholarship, stuff like that, where we then offer up to people from the outside. We have the ability for people that study to come in and then get kind of acquainted to the company, learn the trade, and kind of do a little, little bit of a semester work on the site alongside the study. So there are multiple things and we're not the only one. I think all of the big companies in the world are, are, are offering something like that. So that's one thing that you can do. The other thing is, if you really want to be in that space, learn, learn the trade, read about it, understand the political dynamics, understand how things are working, how they're working in, in conjunction, because you need to make your mind up if you want to, if you want to switch into that career because it gives you a ton of opportunities. I just mentioned, if you spent five to seven years of your life getting into this area, you want to understand, so what's after that? So if I need to become a troubleshooting technician, highly skilled, highly evaluated uh, by any company, and you can get a, a job anywhere in the world, you just say, where? And then literally you, you can find an opportunity. Uh, but more importantly, if you get a technical skill set, you can also move into engineering, for instance, and help there. Because we need people from the front line that have kind of developed themselves into that to that mantra and understanding of how they wind turbine operate, as an example. And they are highly appreciated in a engineering design process development. So you can do new product development. You can change into leadership. I know a number of my leadership colleagues, they are former technicians that have kind of grown themselves to become CEOs of the company. So it is possible without having a specific education in that. It's about qualifications, it's about skills, competencies, and the willingness to learn. And if you do that, the only thing you don't know is where you're going to end. The only thing I can tell you is there's going to be a ton of jobs. I think globally we're looking at more than, I don't know, 15, 20 million of, of jobs that's going to come up in the, in the next years, just to help with the energy transition globally. It's a big one. Yeah, and it makes sense to apply yourself in those fields because it's going to be high demand. You're going to have no issue getting a job. You're going to get a premium. You're going to get paid very well because there's a limit. So everybody needs to become engineers and renewable energy technicians. Absolutely. Thank you, Claus, for coming on the show. This is great. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Failing to Success. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, with Cosmic Design and Development. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe, and we'll see you next time.